to say how good it is to be back here. Um, I was in Uganda for, uh, for, a, for a little while, and it was a great uh, journey. Um, we, if you don't know, we have been kind of involved with an orphanage there for the last couple of years, and the orphanage is continuing to kind of evolve, and uh, it's been around for around 20 years or so. I'll talk a little bit more about it here in a few minutes, but, uh, but it was a great opportunity to be there and to see what the Lord is doing and to see what ZPCers are doing as well. And I went a couple days before the rest of the team, and the rest of the team will be back here I think Tuesday or Wednesday so they're having a a great time there but it is good to be back and I wanted to uh, be here this morning honestly I'm still a little foggy headed uh, so if I mess something up more than usual that's just say it's for that reason Um, but I wanted to preach still this morning because it was kind of a kickoff uh, to our book of Ruth to our sermon series on Ruth and I didn't want to miss that and so I'm excited to be here you know a couple years ago uh, or three or four years ago I'm at the all-church retreat, um, our main speaker had to opt out at the last minute. Maybe you were around and you recall that. And so I kind of stepped in and I did Ruth. And so uh, if any of this sounds familiar, uh, I've just basically copied and pasted the whole thing. So I'm just kidding. Uh, so, um, but, um, but I love this book of Ruth and I think it has much to say to us in this day and age. And so I'm excited for the next few weeks to Uh, be able to go through this. So let's begin then with Ruth chapter 1. I'll do the whole chapter. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephathrites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The names of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And when they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Chilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. But may the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, call me no longer Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we come to you on this day with this scripture passage, Lord, a story that has taken place long ago in a context very different than our own. But I pray this morning that you would still speak to us and that we would hear what you would have to say. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So as you probably know, the Old Testament is full of incredible uh, stories that have much great content and meaning. The problem is, is that the Old Testament setting is so different than the one in which we find ourselves that with great regularity, it is kind of hard to know exactly what to do with those stories. So whenever we're dealing with the Old Testament, we always have to work a little bit harder to try to dig a little bit more and under, in order to understand a little bit deeper what exactly the story was saying what it would have sounded like to those first listeners, to the original audience, and then ask what might that mean for us today. And so because of that, I want to kind of quickly, over the next few minutes, begin by just going back over the story and at least in some way trying to understand better what this would have sounded like long ago. So for instance, our story begins by saying that the time when the judges ruled. Now, that may not mean that much to us. We may just think, well, that's just a fact. The judges were ruling. But what the original listener would have heard was the fact that for most of the time when the judges were ruling Israel, it was a time of unsettledness. It was a time of governmental instability. This was not a time of security. It was a time of great unrest. So if you heard this for the first time, you would have already been wondering, "Uh uh-oh, something doesn't sound right. This doesn't sound very secure. And we see that that is only accentuated, right, by what comes next. Because we're told that there was a famine in the land. Now here's the thing again, which is that famine is something that's very difficult for most of us to really understand, right? I I talked a a few months ago, I mentioned how when the marsh in Boone Village shut down, how that threw me off my game completely, right? Because now I had to like drive an extra five to seven minutes, right? To a grocery store, mind you, that was completely full of food and drink, but still it threw me off my game, right? And for someone like me to try to understand famine is pretty difficult. Right? What would it be like to have no idea where your food is coming from today 
or tomorrow or even the day after that. And to realize that if no rains come, that if no food is produced, that you are going to starve. Most of us cannot grapple with what that is actually like. So there's a great famine in the land. And we're told that the famine is in the land of Bethlehem, right? And so you have the city of Bethlehem. And perhaps you know what Bethlehem means. It's Bait Lehem, which means the house of bread, right? And so all of a sudden we see the irony beginning in this story, which is that in the house of bread, there is no bread. Right? And so you have this kind of strange thing that there is no bread in the house of bread. And then we're introduced to the family, right? And the family there is Elimelech, who's the father. Then there's Naomi, the mother and the wife. And then you have Malon and Chilion. Now, what's interesting about those names, Malon and Chilion, is that Malon means, most think, disease. And Chilion means perish. So apparently the Israelites didn't quite yet know how to set up your children for success, right? And so again, you already have, if you're listening to this story, if you're one of the original hearers, you're realizing, okay, this is getting worse and worse. And so we're told that this family then decided that they were going to leave. It's this great reminder of the fact that for millennia, Immigrants and refugees have fled where they were coming from out of fear, out of hunger, out of despair, out of economic struggle in order to find a place to cross a boundary, in order to find a place for security and food. They've been doing this for thousands of years. But what would have troubled the original listener to this was not the fact that they decided to go to another country. It's that they decided to go to Moab. Because Moab and Israel had a very troubled history, a very troubled past. It would not have made sense to them. Go someplace else, but you don't go to Moab. But they did. And so the audience would have thought, well, this is probably not going to end well. And it didn't. First of all, you see these two, uh, uh, the two sons, they end up, uh, they end up marrying uh, two Moabite women, which again would not have been something that the Israelites would have thought was a good idea. And then, of course, they begin to die, right? Elimelech dies, Malon dies, Chilion dies, and so all of a sudden you are left with three widows, Now here's something else that we have to keep in mind. While certainly we have widows and widowers here, we know the emotional turmoil, the spiritual turmoil even that occurs whenever a spouse dies. But what we also have to try to understand as well is that in this time and place, this wasn't just a sadness. This was a time and place when women had had very few rights and very little hope of any kind of economic stability outside of a male being in their life. And so as soon as they realized that there were these three women who were all widows, they knew that they would have been asking real questions like, where are they going to eat Where are they going to sleep? How are they going to live? There is this remarkable amount of vulnerability and instability in the sense of three widows together. Naomi then, in one of the only only few times that we hear about 
the Lord in this whole book of Ruth hears that the Lord has looked favorably now upon Bethlehem, that there is food to be had. And so she begins with Orpah and Ruth to begin to walk towards Bethlehem. But then at some point, she has a change of heart when it comes to these two daughters-in-law of hers. And she decides that they should actually go back. We don't really know why. I mean, one of the great things about the Old Testament stories is oftentimes they leave much open to interpretation. It allows us to enter into the stories, quite frankly, much more easily. What's going on with Naomi at this place? As she, as, she, as she walks towards Bethlehem, she realizes that there's not going to be any opportunities there. She seems to speak to that. Is it that she remembers vividly what it was like for her to go into enemy territory? And she knows that when these two Moabite women come into Bethlehem, that she will not be received warmly. Is it because of the fact that she simply, every time she sees them, she is reminded of what she no longer has. We don't know. What we do know is that perhaps it's a little bit of all those things. But of course, what's interesting is that she says, you return to your mother's house. And mother's house is rarely in the Old Testament ever used, but when it is used, it's almost always used in the context of marriage. In other words, what she wants, it seems, is for them to go back and to get married. She wants them to know she's giving them the freedom to start their lives over again, even if she knows that she cannot start her own life again. Both the daughters-in-law, they protest for a while, and then Orpah finally decides that she is going to go back. Nothing is said bad about Orpah or about the fact that she decided to return. There seems to be that that was fine to have done, so she returned. But Ruth does not return. In fact, Ruth gives this great line of steadfastness and loyalty. It's a line that you've heard before. It's a line that's oftentimes used in weddings, actually. It says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Now, as a quick aside, it's actually quite funny that this passage is used in weddings because for First of all, it's, it's a mother-in-law to her daughter-in-law, right? I mean, which is a little bit odd, right, to use that in weddings. And then secondly, one of the parties wants the other party to leave. That doesn't seem weird to you. Okay, fine. Well, I don't know what kind of wedding you guys had. But I think usually what you're doing is saying, hey, we want to stay together, right? And so it's this kind of strange thing that brides and grooms uh, easily look over. But it is a beautiful sense, a beautiful statement of commitment, a beautiful statement of, I am going to go with you wherever you go. And then we're told that Naomi says nothing else to her. And again, we don't know what that means. She gets the silent treatment. Is it because of the fact that she, well, she really wanted her to go with her, so she's just happy, so she doesn't have to say anything else? Or is it that she's angry? She's livid with Ruth because she just wanted to be left alone, and this ridiculous daughter-in-law won't listen to her. We don't know. We just know that there was nothing else said. And so they just keep going on to Bethlehem. And once they arrive in Bethlehem, we're told the women gather around and they ask this question, is this Naomi? Now, 
again, we have no idea how to interpret that. Is this like when you go to a high school reunion or something and you look at somebody and you're like, is that George? Is that Susan? You know, usually when you ask that, it's not a good thing. It's like the years have not been easy on you, right? Or is it, is that Naomi? This is so great. Naomi's back, everybody. We don't know. What we do know beyond the shadow of a doubt is that Naomi is not ambiguous at all. She is very clear. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. All right, bitter. Right? I went away full and now I am empty. The Lord has turned his back on me. Now, you could do a lot of things with that, but one thing I just want to briefly point out is, if you're Ruth, this is sort of awkward. Because there you are right next to her. You've traveled all this way, and she says, I got nothing. It's weird to me. It's a fascinating passage. And as I was kind of thinking about it over the last couple of weeks, I kept asking, what am I supposed to do with this in terms of connecting it with what goes on in central Indiana in 2019? And I decided that what I wanted to do this morning, partly because of the fact that I'm tired, partly because of the fact that there are no clear answers at this point in the book of Ruth, is that I simply want to make a couple of observations. The first observation is this. Naomi serves as a very strange symbol of good evangelism. I mean, you see here that Ruth has said, I will no longer follow my gods. I am going to follow your God now, Naomi. Your God will be my God. Now, Naomi, though, is not exactly the ideal type for evangelism. Right? I mean, usually when you think about a good evangelist, you think about somebody who, who has it all buttoned up. They have it all together. They only speak glowingly of God. God just, he just blesses. He's so wonderful all the time. But that's not Naomi's spiel, is it? I mean, think about this. Naomi, right? She says to them, ah, oh, the Lord has turned his back on me. I went away full. Now I'm empty. The Lord has dealt with me harshly. Want to follow him? Right? This is not what you see in any of your evangelism books. I can promise you that. So one of the questions that we have to ask is, why is that? Why is it that, that, that Ruth wants to follow the same God that Naomi does? Well, we don't know for sure, but I'll tell you a couple things that I've been thinking about. One of them is this, is that the way in which Naomi speaks, it is clear that the God that Naomi serves is a God, as we've talked about before, who is very open to questions and to doubts and to fears and to anger. And I think that makes sense. One of the things we've been talking about is how God wants to be in relationship with us. And anytime you are in relationship, in good, healthy relationship with somebody else, there are always going to be those times of questions and doubts and anger. And one of the things that we see that perhaps Ruth thought about was the fact that most of her gods were not open to you being really honest about the fact that you thought that they have turned their back on you. 
But Naomi's God is a God who seems big enough to be able to handle those kinds of questions and those kinds of doubts and that kind of anger. And that's an invitation. Of course, the other thing that's been brought up is that we have to realize that we're seeing merely a snapshot of Ruth and Naomi's life. In other words, as it's been pointed out, the reason, part of the reason why Ruth wanted to follow Naomi's God was not because of the fact that, that, that she put on this great happy face, but because of the fact that Ruth had, had traveled with Naomi for many years and had seen her diligently obeying and worshiping God over many years. This reminds me of what we have been saying about steady stable, and plotting discipleship. You see, at no point does Naomi say, I've given up on God. At no point does she say, I don't even think God's there anymore. She just says, I think God's turned his back on me. But she continues to be a follower of God. And I think more often than we realize, we can be a remarkable witnesses to our God when we are willing by being steady, stable, and plodding to continue to worship God in the good times and in the difficult times. And we have no idea how that may change and shape people who are watching us either from a distance or close up. There's another observation, it seems to me, that's really important for us to realize, and it's one that I think deep down we all know, but it's always easier to see when it happens to somebody else. And that is the incredible impact that grief and despair and depression has on the way that we see the world around us. Again, let me go back to this fact. That Naomi is sitting there before all these people. And she's standing there with Ruth. With Ruth who has left her country. With Ruth who has left her gods. With Ruth who has said, I'm going to be buried wherever it is that you are buried. She has left everything. She She has walked with her this whole journey and gone into enemy territory. Where she knows that she is going to be known, as the scripture says, as Ruth the Moabite. Which is not a positive line. She has done all those things, and she is there with Naomi when Naomi says, I've got nothing. See, one of the things that this is a great reminder for us is that when you are in the middle of grief or despair or pain, oftentimes your lens is distorted, and all you can see is what you do not have. One of the things that that tells us is that if you, are re- if you are with someone who is wrestling with that, it is to be patient with them. I think far too often we try to fix people and we try to say when they're in the midst of grief, let me tell you all the positive things. Why are you always complaining? Let me tell you everything that's really good. And while there may be a time for that, I think far too often we try to hurry up and fix it when what we need to do is just simply be there with them and realize that this is what they are doing. But I think the second thing that we need to be mindful of is, is, is that if we are in the midst of grief or depression or pain, we need to be mindful of the fact that there is a very good chance that there is a roof or a blessing that is right next to us and we simply cannot see it right then. So that even when we are struggling and in pain and when we are seeing only the negative, with our hearts, at least intellectually, for us to go back to a story like this and to say, I have a sneaking suspicion. There is probably a Ruth or a blessing that is right next to me, but right now I cannot see it. 
And perhaps if we can at least just spend a little time to try to look around and to say, where is the Ruth or the blessing that is here that I am currently absolutely blinded to because of where I am in my life? Because oftentimes that is where we will see God at work, even when we feel as if God has turned his back on us. The last thing that I want us to observe is something that, quite frankly, I don't know how to communicate well. And so it may not land at all. But that's never stopped me from trying. I think it is almost impossible for us to actually understand what it is like to live in this deep, perpetual vulnerability that so many then lived in and that Ruth and Naomi must have felt incredibly deeply. You see, when you think about the fact that they never knew for sure what was going to happen in their government, that any moment there could be an overthrowing When you think about the fact that there was this famine and that they had no idea whether or not they were going to be able to eat. When you think about the fact that they were widows and they had absolutely no idea how they were going to be able to take care of themselves and whether or not they would have an opportunity or whether or not they would be violated in some way. They had none of that security whatsoever. I think that the vast majority of us, we simply cannot understand it. It's not our fault. It's just that we don't live in that kind of world. We have moments, all of us, of, of glimpses of vulnerability, but none of us live in a perpetual state of vulnerability like they did. And I think if we want to try to understand the story of Ruth, we have to try to understand that. And if we want to understand the story of so many in our world today, then we have to take seriously the reality of what it means to live in a perpetual state of vulnerability and insecurity and defenselessness. You see, I don't think that it was just happenstance that I really began jotting down notes and thinking through this on my flights to Uganda. Now, I know what it's like And I know how annoying it can be when someone comes back from a mission trip and says, hey, I've got a new revelation for you guys, right? I mean, I've been a part of those. It can be kind of annoying to hear that. And all it can do oftentimes is make you feel guilty or make you feel bad about what you have or that you didn't go. And so I want you to know I'm sorry if I'm annoying to you. Now, I'm not always sorry if I'm annoying to you, but I'm sorry this time if I'm annoying to you. And I wanted to try to figure out, how do I talk about what I've seen in Uganda? And I realized I couldn't really describe it very well. Megan kept asking me, well, what was it like? Tell me what it's like. And all I could say was, well, you just, just go. Because right? I can't really explain it with words. It's too hard. It's a feeling more than it is a, kind of an intellectual ascent. One of the interesting things for me is that I hate taking pictures. Hate taking pictures. I think it just kills everything. But... 
I even took a few pictures, not very good ones, but I took a few pictures as a way of trying in some way to describe what I had experienced and what I was feeling. So I want to show you just a few pictures. See, this first picture here, uh, and again, I know these aren't great pictures. This is not going on National Geographic or anything else. But this is a picture, obviously, of just a simple road. But one of the things that you notice when you live in a country that is so poverty-stricken like Uganda is that there are always people walking on the road. I mean, usually tens and twenties and hundreds of people who are walking. And they're walking, of course, because they can't afford a vehicle. They can't, some of them can't afford a motorcycle. Most of them can't afford a motorcycle. And so they're walking. They walk to their little farms. They walk to uh, get clean water. They walk wherever it is they have to go. They're always walking. And they're walking, of course, where there are some cars going. I mean, this is a dirt road on the paved roads. If you think our potholes are bad, let me tell you, they are nothing compared to the potholes there. So guess what happens? If you're driving and you can go 40 or 50 miles an hour, when we did this, you spend the whole time doing this. You know why? Because the driver is spending all of his time avoiding the potholes. Well, guess what else is happening? Is that along the side of the road, you know what you have? Lots of people. And some of these people are five and six years old. They are little kids. And they're walking along the road and they're within inches, I kid you not, inches of cars that are flying by. I had to stop looking at points because it was too much. I don't know why the child in that slide that you showed Amy Claire had to be named Winnie. Right, because there's my winning, and I'm thinking about this and how close. And then you have times when you have these little motorbikes and they have three and four little kids there. And I'm thinking, where, you know, we get so worried about car seats. They're just on these motorcycles. And I realize that they are inches from death all the time, all the time. And then we went to the next place there. And you can see we went to a, a nearby a school uh, where we began, we, we began to invest in we came here to this little town right next to the school, this little village, and, and these were kids, um, and they weren't in school because uh, while public schools are free, you still have to pay for books. And so many of them can't pay for books, and you can see this, and you can even see the kid on the left. and um, Yeah, you can see his stomach just kind of, you know, distended some. And you realize, and we can see in this next shot as well, I mean, you see this kid, I mean, it's this beautiful shot, right, of this child with another child. And, and, and one of the things they said to us is, you'll, you'll realize that you hardly ever see these kids, you hardly ever see them sweat. And the reason for that is they're in a constant state of dehydration. Right? And so they, they hardly ever sweat. And so you sit there and you see these children and you just kind of, oh. And then we went out to the bush. Oh, no, is that, is that what's next? We went out to, let's see what's next. Yeah, we went out to the bush, and this was just a couple of miles off. And this was even the, 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 the poor, the poorest of the poor. And we got to listen to some of these kids' moms talk. And they were widows as well, and their, their husbands who had died of tuberculosis, of HIV AIDS, of other things that they never meant, they didn't even tell us. We don't know what it was. Maybe they don't know what it was. And you see these kids and you begin to hear these stories again of, this, of the daily struggles that they have. 
And then we see this, uh, I think it's an orphanage that's next, is that right? We see this, this was the original orphanage that, that we work with now. And the reason why it started was because Joseph Coney and the Lord's Resistance Army, maybe you remember them from a decade, decade and a half ago, who was going out into the bushes and was taking children. I don't know if we have any children here who was taking children. And so I won't get too brutal about this, but their children then were having to um, dispose of their parents. And so they, they, they kind of quickly, this was the girls' hostel, and so they quickly kind of uh, gathered together 200 kids, and they put them all in this place, and they were kind of hiding in there for a couple of years, and then they got this notification that, that the Lord's, Defense, our Lord's our Resistance Army was going to be there in two hours, and so they quickly kind of gathered together all the children and went into Lyra, and I was sitting there when I was at this place. I don't have a picture of it. I was talking to a kid, they were probably about 20, 22, and two of those kids who were those original orphans, and you think they lived through this constant fear that at any moment someone was going to come and take them away. It's constant vulnerability. I think I don't know how to even deal with that. I don't talk about that. But here's what else. I I also want you to know this because this is really important. It's not all bleak. I mean, the Ugandans were also an incredibly beautiful people. But I had some precious moments. I had this moment, we went to this school and it was nap time. Isn't that awesome? So there they are. I don't know if they're faking or not, but they looked like they were really sleeping. And then I went out for a run a couple of mornings. And, and on this run, um, this was great. This is the second time I went out. Um, these five kids, I have a video of it, but it's not that good. They started running with me. Right? So for about a quarter mile to a half mile until they had to part off, they were running with me. Trust me, they could have run a lot faster than me. They were mocking me. There's no question about that. <laughs> but it was this beautiful sense. You can see one of the kids there at that school without shoes on with that little kid. Oh, my gosh. He was so cute. And then we were kind of leading a pastor's conference. And, 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 and Reverend Stan Johnson, you know, our parish associate here, he's there leading this pastor's conference. And one of the most beautiful moments, and you can't get the whole feel for it, but was when the pastors decided to sing for us. Stan asked if they would sing for us. And, and so I took this little brief video of their singing, and I want you to just, just listen to this. There is a beauty that comes from seeing a people worship, seeing a people who have nothing 
and yet continue to worship God from the, from the very pit of their souls. And one of the things that I want us to know is this. I don't tell us this. I don't think it's helpful for us to feel guilty about what we have at all. And I don't think it's right, but I also think that we can't grow complacent because of what we have. One of the things that I am deeply appreciative about ZPC is this. We don't do it perfectly. But there is a sense of holy discontent that many of us have to just simply allow others to live in the perpetual state of vulnerability without letting them know that they are not alone. One of the things that I got to do on this trip, and one of the things that so many who have gone off on trips before, whether it's a far distance away or on the east side of Indianapolis, as our middle schoolers would do, is that we get to come alongside of them like Ruth. In the background, perhaps, oftentimes we're best when we're in the background. But simply as a way of letting them know that they are not alone. And that even if it seems that God has turned his back on them, they are not alone. And I want to encourage us sisters and brothers in Christ. Not to go away and think, oh man, the world is so horrible. I feel bad for these people. But nor to go away and say, well, there's nothing we can do. Oh, there is much to be done. And it begins by our simply being, or being intentional about saying, we will not let you be alone. This is what God calls us to. What I want you to know is that there is hope. I love the way the first chapter ends. Did you hear it? They came to Bethlehem. At the beginning of the barley harvest. That even when all seems lost to Naomi, God has not left her. And the hope of the harvest is always Let us pray. God, we give you praise. That even in the most difficult of places, you are there. That even when your people cannot see you, that we know that you are there. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us here at ZPC to continue to have a sense of holy discontent. That we might see our role much like Ruth. Perhaps a quiet role. An unsung role. But a role which reminds those who suffer that they do not do so alone. May that be our call. It's in your name we pray. Amen.